0: Yes, are Christians not supposed to mingle with the world? This is the question we're going to deal with today. Okay, and this is uh, <laughs> Okay, the que- okay, this is what I meant to talk about today. <laughs> okay, so this is the, the the big the deal here, okay? We've been taught and if you're part of the church for a long time, you probably remember this teaching from a long time ago. Maybe you still hear it every once in a while, that the world is evil, right? It has bad influence on our, on us, our kids. So what we need to do is we have to pull ourselves away from the world so that we could stay holy, whatever that word means, right? And um, let the world destroy itself while we're, we're over here on an eternal retreat having a good time praising Jesus, right? And so the question is, how much are we supposed to engage the world? How much are we supposed to mingle with the world? Are we supposed to be completely separate from it? Because it seems like that's the easiest way to be not influenced by the world, right? But the problem with that is, the further we pull ourselves away from the world, we don't really have an impact on the world anymore. Right, we create our own version of music, we create our own version of T-shirts and fashion and movies, and they're not really good, but we keep doing these things because we're like, oh, there's a Christian alternative for that, let's stay away from the world. And I I don't know, if if I lived according to the Christian version of everything, I think I would go crazy. (laughs) Um, But I I just want to talk about this because I think a lot of people have mistaken that the point of being a Christian, like the height of Christianity, is to be apart from the world, and it is not. And we're going to talk about that through today's verse, which is now Acts 23, verses 12 to chapter 24, verse 23. So like a whole chapter. We're going to go through a whole chapter. And in order to talk about this, We have to go back a few chapters to set the context because there's some stuff that happened a few verses before that's important to making this point today. So, here's the map. The entire story that we're talking about takes place in the city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital, the main city of Israel, and this is like the place where all, this is the hub of, of, of Judaism, okay? Now, in Judaism, this whole new Jesus movement started. Okay, and while, when it started, everybody was like, this is great, let's talk about it to every, as many people as we can, let's live on the people as much as we can. And they were doing that, but this guy named Paul, the apostle, he said, okay, disciples of Jesus, you cover Jerusalem, you take care of that, I'm gonna go to the rest of the world, and I'm gonna see if I could talk, convince the people, the Jews outside of Jerusalem, about this new Jesus message. So he goes out there, and as he's trying to talk to these people who are Jews outside of Jerusalem, It turns out they keep rejecting Paul's message, but the people who aren't Jews, the Gentiles, they seem to be accepting of it. And as he's going around talking to these people, they start realizing, Paul starts realizing that these people, they are fulfilling God's commands without really following the commands of God, if that makes sense. Like they're not following the 600 plus laws in the Bible, but they are able to love God and love others in the way that God wants them to. So Paul comes to this conclusion that, hey, maybe we don't need to follow these laws anymore. Now, the people back at Jerusalem are not happy with that because they've devoted their entire lives in following these rules, right? So when Paul comes and visits Jerusalem, it's been 20 years since the last time he's been there. He grew up in the temple, he grew, you know, right? He's been here a lot. He knows that there's gonna be a lot of opposition. Like when he walks down the streets of Jerusalem, they're gonna be like, oh my goodness, there's Paul. That's the guy that keeps breaking the rules. He encourages other people to break the rules. Can we really have him here, right? So in the middle of Jerusalem is this thing called a temple. That's the temple right there, right? And there's all the courtyards on the outside. So Paul decides to visit this place. He he used to go here all the time, and it's been 20 years. He wanted to go there and worship. But as soon as he enters he knows that there's going to be a lot of people who's going to want to mess with him. So he takes this vow called the Nazarite vow. It's the yeah. highest version of a vow you could take in the, in the Jewish culture back then. So he's like, the best way for me to show the people here that I respect them is by taking or participating in this vow that not many people take because it's so high up there. So he takes this vow, and then he enters this temple. Now, here's an illustration of what happened. So, next slide. So, we have Paul who enters into the temple, right? And when he enters into the temple and he took that vow before he got there, a Jewish man, so over here, he enters the picture and he sees Paul and he sees him hanging out with this other guy who is not Jewish. And back in those days, you weren't allowed to go in there if you were not Jewish. So, he assumes that Paul was the one that invited him in, and he starts yelling at everybody, hey guys, there's Paul, he's the guy that's like been disrespecting us, he's the one that's been trying to shut down this place. None of these things are true, right? But he's like, and every little minuscule thing he's trying to pick at so that he get everybody on his side to, to attack Paul. Eventually all these people, they pin Paul down the ground and they start beating him down, attempting to kill him. Because there's this riot that's happening in the temple, the Roman guard enters in. So here's the Roman guard. He's a a commander of the Roman army. His name is Lysias. Lysias enters and he defends Paul. Now what's interesting about Lysias is that when he pulls him aside and he says, hey, like, what's going on here? Break it up, guys. Paul's like, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. And Lysias believes him. But the people keep saying, kill Paul, kill Paul, right? And so out of that Pressure, Lysias takes Paul, pins him down to the ground, pulls out a whip, and he's about to flog him. And right when he's about to flog him, Paul's like, wait, 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 I'm a Roman citizen. And this is what happens. This is Acts chapter 22. This is what he says. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Like, Let me ask you a question. Let me remind you something. Your system, your legal system, doesn't allow for this to happen, right? So basically what he does here is Paul reminds the Romans to uphold their own laws. Your rule says you can't do this to me, and they're like, oh, dude, you're right. Oh, we're so, my bad. You know, like, they actually back off and say, we we had no idea. Oh, we're so sorry. You're right. That is our rule. That's our law. And so that night... Um, uh, Lysias takes Paul to the barracks and he says, "Okay, we still need to get to the bottom of this. Why is there so much conflict around you? Why are people trying to kill you? So like we need to get more information. So what I'm going to do is tomorrow morning I'm going to set up a meeting with you, a trial really, with you, and the council called the Sanhedrin. So that's the next morning. The sanhedrin consists of the high priest, his name is Ananias, Pharisees and Sadducees, and I realize I spelled Sadducee wrong, but I forgot to fix that. Okay. Um, and as soon as he shows up at this meeting, right, Paul says, hi, Council, holy Council. Uh, my name is Paul. You know me. I used to be your friend. You know, I used to be up there with you. But you know I didn't do anything wrong. And right after he says that, the high priest, Ananias, orders somebody to slap Paul in the face. Paul's response, this is what he says. Man, you sit there to judge me according to the law, like you uphold the Jewish law, right? The Mosaic laws, the Old Testament rules, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Like, hey, your system doesn't allow this to happen. Like, why are you breaking your own rules? Paul reminds the Jews to uphold their own laws. Like, you know, I know the Old Testament backwards and forth because I used to be a part of your group. And I know that your rules doesn't allow this to happen. So why are you doing it? You're breaking your own rules. Story goes on. So Paul and the Sadducees, you know, they get into a big brawl. So Lysias, Commander Lysias, he jumps in again and he defends Paul and like, "Um, we need to get out of here, Paul. It's like, okay, so next slide. So Paul and Commander Lysias, they basically, basically withdraw from this crowd. And that night, God speaks to Paul and says, hey, I'm with you, I know this is bad, but the way that you're witnessing about my love to Jerusalem, you're going to do that again in Rome. But I'm going to be with you every step of the way, man. And that leads us to chapter 23, okay? In chapter 23, the next morning after this, this is where we begin our story today. The next morning, some Jews, and some Jews, a lot of commentators call these Jews um, the zealots. These are people who are really, like, We love God so much, we're willing to get violent for God, okay? The next morning, some Jews formed, oh, wait back. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. It's like, hey guys, I have a great plan. Well, what's your plan? Um, We're going to conspire, and the Greek word here for conspire literally means to be twisted, like a gathering that's twisted. Like, we're going to Get together the mentally ill people together, right? And we're going to go on a fast. We're not going to eat until that man is dead. They're like, great, great idea. Let's do that, right? How many are there? It says there's more than 40 men (laughs) that were involved in this plot. So they went to the chief priest and the elders and said this. Now, when they go to the chief priest, what they're basically saying is this oath that we just took, we're making this oath to God. Like, Lord, we promise you that we will not eat until this man is dead, which is really weird, and we'll talk about it in a second why it's weird. Next, this is what he tells them. Hey, chief priest, we have taken a solemn oath, and the word solemn oath, if you read the King James Bible, the translation here is we have cursed ourselves. Like, we are hurting ourselves. Like, we have taken a solemn oath, we are cursing ourselves not to eat until we have killed Paul, right? In other words, Here is our master plan. This is what I want you to do. And chief priest, Ananias, this is your part in this this crazy plan we have. Next slide. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. It's like, so chief priest, go to commander Lysias and tell him, can you bring Paul out for a trial number two? Because we just want to get more information about what's going on. But... That is when we attack. Next slide. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So you are going to lure him out and then we're going to kill him right there and then. Okay? Now the problem with this is in doing so, they are breaking their own laws. You see, the zealots... We're willing to break God's law. What laws are they breaking? Well, first they're taking the Lord's name in vain because in the name of God, they're saying, we're not gonna eat until we kill this person. They're talking about murdering somebody, thou shalt not kill, right? And then they're lying, they're saying, hey, chief priest, I want you to lie about bringing them back into trial so that we could kill them. So they're encouraging other people to lie. So they're breaking a bunch of their own laws. So let's recap what's happening here. The Romans, broke their own law. Well, they are about to. Paul stopped them from breaking their own laws, but they were about to, right? The high priests broke his own laws, and then we have the zealots all who also broke their own laws. Now, Luke wrote the book of Acts. What is he trying to tell us here? Is he telling us that the authorities are hypocrites? I mean, that's pretty obvious that's what they're doing, right, but is that the reason why Paul is writing these words for us? No. I mean, Luke, is, that, is this the reason why Luke is telling these things, right? Is he trying to teach us to never trust our authorities? Never trust the president, never trust uh, the police, never trust your politicians, never trust your boss, never trust the, you know, the principal, never, right? Is that what Paul is trying to teach us through Luke's writings? Is that what's going on here? Is he trying to turn us against the system that we're a part of? Well, let's keep reading because I wanna tell you that's not what he's trying to do here, okay? Otherwise, we would have seen in church history a 1,000 years, 2,000 years ago, a bunch of Christians starting riots all over the place, but that's not what they were doing. That's not what they got out of this text, okay? So let's go on with this story. So I just want to summarize the next few verses, what's happening here. Okay, so this crazy plot that, that, um, that the zealots had, it turns out Paul, he has a sister who has a kid, so he has a nephew. The nephew overhears this plan. He runs over to the barracks and tells Paul, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, somebody's going to come and get you, for another trial, but what's really happening is they're trying to use that as a way to kill you. They're trying to ambush you. They're like, okay, good, thanks for spying for me. Um, Go tell Commander Lysias what's about to happen. So the nephew runs over to Lysias and says, hey, Lysias, sir, Um, the high priest is gonna come here and ask you for another trial, but it's really their way of getting Paul out of his barracks so they could kill him. Like, oh, that's a big, okay, thanks for letting me know. Please don't tell anybody they told me this. This is what we're gonna do. This is Lysias' response. Then he, Lysias, called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Nine o'clock p.m. is basically three hours after sundown, no street lights, so it's just like completely dark. Everybody's usually asleep by now, right? So tonight, when it's dark, we're gonna send, let's see, 270 uh, and 200, so 470 men are gonna protect this one guy and we're gonna escort him to, to Caesarea. What's in Caesarea? <clears throat> well, Caesarea is where the governor lives. You know how during the time of Jesus, Governor Pontius Pilate was there? Well, now he's gone, now the new guy, his name is Felix, Governor Felix. We're gonna send Paul to Felix because there's, they wouldn't dare come and attack Paul while he's in the presence of the governor. So let's do that. So they agree, and so at that point, <clears throat> Lysias picks up his pen or whatever they used back then, feather, I don't know, what did they used to write? I don't know. They chiseled things, I don't know. But he writes a letter to Governor Felix and he says, hey, I'm about to send you Paul, okay? And this is what happened. He gives you like a detailed like, structure of what happened. Like he was hanging out at the temple and then he was attacked and all those things happened. And I'm pretty much sure that he didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't deserve death. But um, I think there's a big theological dispute and for that reason, we're sending him to you. Okay, so at 9 p.m., they get on their horses, and next slide, from Jerusalem, they head north to Caesarea, but before they get there, they stop at a place called Antipetus. Now, this place is a place where, it's like a midway point, and so at that point, he sends half the people back home, saying, hey, um, I think we're far enough from Jerusalem, guards, you can go back home, and then sends Paul up to Caesarea, and the whole trip is about 50 to 60 miles, so it took him like an entire day, maybe more, two days to get there. And by the time he gets there, he gets to Caesarea, and it's a coastal city. And this coastal city looks like this. <clears throat> it's like a beautiful place. This is, the, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and this is probably where the building was. So you look out the window, you see the ocean, you know, it's right. Um, historian back then, his name is Josephus, he, about this place, he said this is Herod's most costly palace. Probably costly because the waves keep crashing into this building, and now it's gone, right? But this is basically where he was kept, and so for. Paul is like paradise, like, wow, this is nice, right? So he's hanging out there, and then five days later, this happens. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, 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 and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. In other words, these religious people, they don't like Paul so much that they lawyered up. Right? They brought up a lawyer and said, hey, we're going to make a case against Paul in front of you, oh great governor Felix. Okay, so so now the governor's like, oh, this is getting real. This is like, like a trial drama, courtroom drama thing. Let's, okay, let's, let's see what happens. When Paul was called in, Tertullus uh, presented his case before Felix. Now, pay attention to what words he uses here. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. So what is he doing here? He's buttering him up. He's kissing his butt, right? He's doing everything he can to have Felix on his side. But in doing so, he's doing a few things wrong. Number one, from our history, we know that Governor Felix was a bad governor. He actually did nothing to promote peace. As a matter of fact, he contributed to the chaos by executing people that he shouldn't have executed. And for that reason, he had done nothing for peace. But here, he's lying. He's saying, hey, Governor Felix, I've seen all the great work you've done. You brought so much peace to this land. Um, We just love you so much. So they're lying to butter him up. Next slide. He said, everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. The word here that he uses for most excellent Felix is basically a word of worship. And remember, and this lawyer is Jewish, okay? He has a Gentile name, but he's actually Jewish. And he's actually using words that he will only use for God to talk about this governor Felix. So he's bowing down to, to somebody else that's not God, right? So in order to win this case, this guy is lying and he's also worshiping and bowing down to this guy that is not God, which is against their law, right? And then he's like, okay, now let's get down to business. But in order not to, wear, to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So here is the case I wanna make against Paul. Here we go. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Troublemaker, in other words, saying, the peace that you also oh graciously given us you gifted us this guy is trying to destroy it now the role of the governor was to maintain peace in the land because if the caesar finds out that there's a war going on in one of his lands right he he would not be happy about that so it's like your job is to keep peace and you're doing a great job governor felix and here's this guy who's trying to undo that do you have any proof yes we have three proofs and so he lists all three right here number 1 He's stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is starting chaos, riots. He's, he's undoing the peace that you've given us. Okay, what's your second proof? Second proof, he is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect, aka Christians. This guy is the source of this destabling force of your, your peaceful kingdom. If you get rid of him, that's one less thing that we have to worry about, you know, of destroying this peace. He, if you get rid of him, we were solving a big problem. And then the third thing he says is this, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. The one area that these governors had no control over was what was happening in the temple. And if there was an uprising, a rebellion that happened in the temple, then the governor Felix would be like, uh oh, here we go, I'm gonna lose my job, right? So he's trying to say, what this man right here Paul is doing is he's trying to overthrow your job, your role in this kingdom, By starting riots in the temple, that's going to spread to the rest of the world. So he's a ringleader. He's starting riots. And he's a part of this this cult called the Nazarenes. Like, Like, trust me, governor, you want to get rid of this guy. So we seized him, and we would have judged him in accordance with our law. He's like, since this riot happened in the temple, we're trying to do you, O great Felix, a favor by maintaining it, containing it inside this temple, right? We could deal with this, so you never even have to hear about this. But, but we're trying to do you a favor, but the commander Lysias, he came and t- uh, took him from us with much violence, ordering his accusers to come before you. Like, we try to keep it in the temple. We try to, you know, deal with it because it's a, it's a religious issue, right? Right, you don't have to deal with this, we'll deal with it. But Lysias came and took him out, and now he's here before you. Lysias is ruining our attempt protecting you oh great felix your highness your excellency and then they conclude their talk by saying this by examining him for yourself you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him translation we are teaching the romans a lesson not to get involved in interfering with our religious stuff because because they interfere with our stuff now you have to deal with this like, we could have maintained it, we could have maintained peace, but the state got involved in religious things, and for that reason, you have to deal with it. So, we're not just throwing Paul under the bus, we're also throwing Commander Lysias under the bus. This is a summary of what they're saying. We are doing our best at protecting your reputation, O great governor, but Commander Lysias took our problems and made it your problem. And the thing that's really messed up about this is that Lysias isn't there to defend himself. He's not there, Right? So, since he's not there to defend himself, Paul's like, governor's like, well, I guess Paul, I have to listen to your side of the story. So, when the governor motioned for Paul to speak, he replied, I know that for a a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. He's not buttering him up at all. He's just saying, I know your role is to judge, so let me give you my defense. And uh, basically, he's like, I know they made three accusations. Here are the three accusations that Paul is stirring up riots. Number two, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, that he's a cult, and that he desecrated the temple, and because of those things, they're arguing that this is a religious issue, right? So he's like, let me address the first one f- first, okay? stirring up riots. He says this, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Hey, I was just going to Jerusalem because I wanted to worship. It's been 20 years. I just wanted to sing. I wanted to give offering. I wanted to give money to the people who were poor. That's why I was there, right? And he's like, my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. If you ask anybody, I was just hanging out. I was doing good. I didn't even have a crowd around me, right? I was just there minding my own business. So if you ask any of the witnesses there, he says, they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. You think I'm the one that's causing riots? I was peacefully worshiping by myself. These guys came up to me and they started the riot. So, let's look at the list again. The first one, next slide, doesn't stand a chance. Let's look at the second one. Ringleader of the Nazarene sect, you're claiming that I'm a cult, right? This is what he says. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as followers of the way which they call a sect. You call me a, they're they're saying that I'm a cult? Well, I believe in the same God that the accusers believe in. Right, not only that, I believe Everything that is in accordance with the law, I believe in the same set of rules that they do, I believe in the same prophets that they do, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. I believe in the exact same thing that they believe in, so I don't know why they're calling me a cult. I'm not a, I'm not a sect of Judaism. If, if anything, just like how Pharisees are a sect of Judaism and Sadducees is a sect of Judaism, the way, the Christians, we are also a sect of Judaism. So... Ringleader of the Nazarene sect? I don't think so. Let's cross that out. Number three, they're claiming that I desecrated the temple, like I dirtied it somehow. Well, let's see his defense for that. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, 20 years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. The reason I came here is because I wanted to do good good things. I don't think there's a law against that, right? I didn't desecrate the temple. Not only that, next slide, I was ceremonially clean. I took a vow, like a purity vow, right before I walked into into the temple. So, uh, so, So there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbances, right? It's like, you wanna talk about desecrating the temple? I was squeaky, according to the laws of the Old Testament, I was squeaky clean. And not only that, when I was inside the temple, I was doing good. I don't know what they mean by me desecrating the temple. And then he turns the tables on them. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bringing charges if they have anything against me. Like, I'm not the one that started the riot. There's these other Jews that came from the province of Asia. They're the ones that started the riot. I didn't desecrate the temple. They did. And not only that, or these who are here, the lawyer and the t- chief priest, they should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Like, if anything, I did everything right. They're the ones that's desecrating the temple. They're the ones that's bringing evil into a holy place. Translation, I did everything right, unlike those guys who are accusing me of doing wrong. So, looking at the list right here, desecrated temple, he's like, you could cross that off the list also. Therefore, If they're claiming that this is a religious issue, you could cross that off too because this is not a religious issue. This is a hate issue. They're using religion to persecute me, but in reality, it's just because they hate me. So here's a quick summary. He says, here's my defense. I was minding my own business. They began a riot, not me, they did. They falsely accused me. They desecrated their own temple. And guess what? Your commander Lysias, he's the one that rescued me from this hatred. What is he trying to say? He says, Hey, commander Lysias, your soldiers, they're heroes. They saved my life. So imagine if for Felix, you're listening to this story and you're like, Well, good defense there, good defense there, good, yeah, great defense there. You're right, my soldiers, yes, my soldiers are upholding my own justice system. Yes, right? I, I, so Paul is a genius the way that he approaches this. So this is how the story continues. So Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, with the way the Christian group worked, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He's like, well, okay, let's just push this aside because, yeah, um, they don't have a case anymore. So we're just going to wait until Lysias gets here and want to hear his side of the story. So he ordered the centurions to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. In other words, he got to spend more time at Paradise Caesarea, right? now. You're probably wondering, wow, this is like a courtroom drama. Like, I could see, like, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, for those of you guys are old enough to know what I'm talking about, like, you can't handle the truth. You know, like, that, the whole thing's happening here, and Paul basically wins. And in winning, he didn't just defend himself, he also defended Lysias, who wasn't there to defend himself. So it's like, excellent job. Courtroom drama, right? Is this why Luke is telling us this story? Like, he wants to tell us a story about how awesome of a, a job Paul does at, at defending himself, because he's, he's great at arguing, he's good at giving speeches. Right? Or is is Luke telling us this story to tell us how corrupt the system is? Is Luke telling us this stuff to so that we don't trust authorities anymore? Right? I mean if you read through everything we just talked about right now, you will come to the conclusion, I think, that yeah, you can't trust the governor because he's corrupt. Well he's he seems to be swayed right now, right? But the Romans they fail to uphold their laws. The Jewish sect, they couldn't uphold their law. The zealots couldn't uphold their law, right? Like every authority figure that he comes across seems like they're compromising on their own laws. Now, if you end the story here, you would go home thinking, so therefore, I do not trust in, you know, the police. I do not trust in the president. I do not trust in the governor. I do not trust in any, like, authority figure in your life, right? But that's not why Luke is telling this story because of the next part of the story. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And this is important because Felix is Roman, his wife is Jewish, and together in this story, they represent both systems, okay? He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. He said, let me tell you about my faith. Now, a lot of people would say that this is Paul's opportunity to share the gospel. This is not him sharing the gospel. This is him trying to explain to him what God is up to. Okay, and we were, this is going to become clear in the next section here. So Paul is sharing his faith. This is what he says. He talked about righteousness number one, self-control number two, and judgment the judgment to come number three. Now Paul is not just going into a deep bag of things he could talk about and saying, "Oh, today we're talking about self-control, guys. Today we're talking about the judgment to come." Like these are not three random things that Paul decided to talk about. These three things are crucial in understanding God's story, because at first. God's story starts off with a broken world and God says he wants to make the wrong things in this world right. That's the word righteousness. In the Greek, the word righteousness could also be translated as justice. He wants to, God is interested in taking the broken things in this world and make it right because God has a plan for this world. Okay, so it starts with there. What is our role in this? That's self-control. What we do actually matters in this world. If, you ha- like, if we're gonna be greedy, if you can control yourself from being greedy, maybe more people will have more resources, right? If we are able to have self control when we, we're filled with hate and we want to do something bad to somebody, if we have self control, this hate won't spread. So he's talking about our role in this plan, that, this world that God's given us. And at the end of the story, the judgment to come, he's talking about how at the very end of the story, God will look at all the things that we did, all the good things that we did, and say, This I'm going to uphold. And the things that we did wrong, he's going to squash. Right? So at the end, he's like, this is all the good stuff now, we're gonna build a whole kingdom around this, and then look at the things that you guys got wrong, and we're gonna get rid of it, we're gonna wipe it away. So Paul is telling the story of God from history from beginning to end. And he's telling this, like, and so, you know, this is why I'm being persecuted. This is why I'm going into the world collecting money so I could give money to the people who are in the middle of a famine. This is why I didn't keep the money for myself, this is why I'm giving it away. This is why I was a well-respected Jew in my society, but now I'm willing to be a a traveling wanderer who doesn't have a home anymore. This is why I'm willing to be be whipped, or this is why I'm willing to be in the center of all this chaos, because self-control. My role in fixing this world is to spread the love to the people who have not been loved by the Jewish community for such a long time, right? And so he's telling this story to the governor and his wife, and their response is this. Felix was afraid and said, oh, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. The message of taking responsibility for the well-being of this world was too heavy for him because he doesn't have any self-control. While the rest of the world is in a famine and they're getting hungrier and hungrier, they're hoarding the food and eating it so they could be nice, well-fed while everybody else is starving. For a message to be given to him about being more self-controlled so that he could give food away to the people who need it. Maybe you have to eat less today so that everybody else could eat more. It was too much for him to handle, right? He's basically saying, Paul is like, I have endured all this persecution to, for the sake of doing the right thing. Can you do it, Felix? he's like, no, go away. I don't want to hear your message anymore. So, you know, he's like, I want to distance myself from Paul because his message is so convicting. But at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. It's like, oh, wait, wait, you collect a lot of money? So you mean you're loaded? Okay, so if you want to be set free, I'm willing to do that if you were to give me some money, right? So again, here's another example of an authority figure who is hypocritical, right? Who is compromising on their own systems. So again, why is Luke telling us this story? Does he want us to not like politicians? Does he not want us to, to submit to authorities in this world? Like, does he not want us to look up to our bosses and help, you know, like, what, what is he trying to teach us here? Well, when we hear these stories, and maybe because it's the world we live in right now, when we listen to these stories, what stands out to us is the corruption of the systems that Paul encounters, right? but that is not what Luke intended for us to hear. What Luke intended us to hear is Paul's philosophy of how to view cultural systems. He didn't tell us the stories of how this guy broke the rules, his own rules, this religious leader broke his own rules, and this governor broke his own rules so that we will look, have a bad view of the government that we're a part of. Luke is telling us a story so that we can see how Paul navigated through these instances so we understand how Paul views these systems that he's a part of. Here's a quote from a scholar of the book of Acts, Dr. Willie James Jennings. This is what he says. In all these trial scenes, almost every one of the representatives of Roman Jerusalem is corrupt and underhanded, right? We all notice that, and he continues. And Paul is the one who has to remind them how to perform their own version of justice. It's like, hey Romans, Remember, are you allowed to do this to me because I'm a Roman citizen? It's like, oh, you're totally right. Thanks for reminding us, Paul. High priest, um, are you allowed to slap people in the face? I thought your own laws didn't allow you to do that. They're like, we know that we just wish that you wouldn't bring it up zealots are you allowed to lie like that i mean you're so zealous about your law are you allowed to really do that oh just don't tell us about it right talks to the lawyer hey lawyer you're not supposed to use those languages for people in authority because you're that word those words are meant for god only it's like oh you're right but i want to hear it la, la 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 right governor are you allowed to take bribes um your own law your own roman laws doesn't allow you to take bribes from prisoners oh this is getting uncomfortable right But in through all this, Paul never breaks any of their laws. None of the Jewish laws, none of the Roman laws. This is what Luke wanted us to focus on when he told this story, right? Paul is being depicted as the one who really cares about their respective legal systems. He's like, Romans, Jews, I respect your rules probably even more than you do. Like this is what Paul is saying. He's like, I see value in the system that you are upholding. It's sad that you're not upholding it yourselves, but I respect it. Another scholar, Dr. Timothy uh, Timothy Mackey, says this. These authoritarian figures want to imprison an uncondemned man for years, but all the while he's going to remind every leader that they're not actually following their own laws. And then he continues. Paul actually wants the Romans and Jewish systems to be the best it can be. He believes in justice even more than the authorities. What he's saying here is this. The Roman system and the Jewish system, he's not saying they're perfect. He's even saying that they're corrupt. But the ideals that they're trying to achieve for the society that they're a part of, he says there's something beautiful in them. And I want to highlight that. And I want to keep you accountable to following those systems because if we keep at it, if we keep inching towards that goal, we're going to have something beautiful here. According to your laws, you're not allowed to take bribes because justice is important. According to your system, you're not allowed to slap somebody in the face that you haven't proven of any wrongdoing. According to your system, you're not allowed to crucify or flog somebody that's part of your own tribe. These are beautiful things. And Paul reminds them of how beautiful their systems are if they uphold it in the proper way. Paul wants them to keep pursuing the beauty of the systems that they represent. This is what he also says. Each civilization has its beautiful ideals of justice and peace. Luke portrays the Jesus movement as bringing out the best in human cultures. In other words, he's saying that Paul is the ideal Jew and he is also the ideal Roman in these stories. And because this person is walking into corrupt systems, The people who are upholding the corrupt sections parts of the system are being convicted by it, and they're like, we can't look at the light because it's too bright for us. It reveals how bad we are at upholding our own systems, and that's the reason why Paul is being persecuted. This is a really interesting concept because I think for a long time, we've been looking at, like, there's a system, it's evil, so let's stay outside of it, right? Or there's a system, it's corrupt, so we're going to protest against it from the outside right but and and I think a lot of times we take that stance because it's the easiest thing to do and that easiest thing to do is not that easy but we think it's the easiest thing to do and but these things changing systems to uphold the good parts of it cannot be done from the outside it has you have to be strategically placed on the inside in other words Christians are not called to be separatists we're not supposed to go on some eternal retreat and say, well, let's watch them burn while we do our own little holy club over here, right? We are Christians, and, and, and maybe some of you guys have heard this before, and it's a true statement when I say that we have to remember that we are Christians before we are Americans, okay? But sometimes we take that line and we start thinking, because we're Christians before Americans, let's put a divide between Christians and Americans, and so for that reason, we'll let them do their thing, we'll do our own thing, and we'll draw this line, you know, the the government shouldn't get involved here, we shouldn't get involved there, right? And we draw this line, right? But what Paul is saying here is that no, we should not be separating ourselves from the the government or the culture that we're part of. Instead, he says this, that Christians are people who demonstrate the ideals of humanity within the society. So for example, let's look back at church history, the first century. Christians were known as people who take the riches that they had and they shared it and dispersed it to the people who needed it. Now, if a hoarding person walked into that community, they will look at that and feel convicted right away. Oh well, I don't want to be a part of this community because I don't want to be reminded of how, how, how greedy I am all the time. In the first 300 years of Christianity, the Roman Empire, they valued men over women, so when they had a baby girl, they were tossed the baby out into the streets waiting for them to die. It's been noted that Christians will go into the streets and adopt these little girls, right? And they'll raise them, nurse them, eventually they become participating members of society and they will make the world a better place. For the people who would toss their babies outside just because of the gender of their baby, they will look at this and say, well, I don't wanna be around these people because it makes me feel guilty. It reminds me of my shortcomings. Right? This is the reason why Paul was always being persecuted because he was a light in the darkness and the darkness wanted nothing to do with the light because it made him realize how dark they really were. Christians in the first few centuries, they shared their meals with people that people would not share meals with. The Jews would not share a meal with a Gentile, but the church did. And when the world saw that, they were like, it reminded them of how separate and how segregated they were and the church would just do it every day And the world would look at it and say, oh, that just reminds me how dark and how corrupt we are. We don't want to be a part of that. Christians were known as people who loved all people regardless of their belief systems. There are church fathers in our history that crossed the line and went over to the side of the Islamic side and had meals with them so they could build walls, uh, not walls, (laughs) bridges, tear down walls, build bridges so they could befriend them, get to know them as human beings. Not know them according to what religious practices they're a part of, but to get to know them for who they really are. In today's world, I love hearing stories about bosses who are saying, you know those Christians, they're crazy because they believe in some dead guy who came back to life, but they come to work early and they give it their all. They work really hard for my company. I don't know if I believe in what they believe in, but I want to hire more, more of those guys. I don't believe in what they believe in, but man, I heard that Christians, they take really good care of their spouses, that they sacrifice their own advancement in their workplace so that they could take care of their sixth spouse. I don't know if I believe in this stuff, but I want my daughter to marry one of them. I want my son to be married to one of them. I hope my kids have the positive influence that they have, right? This is the influence that the Christians had for 2,000 years, well, maybe not so much nowadays, but for 2,000 years in general, we did, right? Christians are known for not wanting to build empires because they know that to build empires, we have to cut corners somewhere. We have to underpay somebody somewhere. We have to exploit somewhere somewhere. So Christians believe that, that people are more important than the systems that we create around us that instead of saying, hey, one day I'll be rich and with my money, I'm gonna bless the world, the Christians said, no, that's not the way to do it. The way we do it is the way that Jesus did it, which is to lower ourselves under the system so we can uplift everybody from underneath. Christians are people who are not supposed to be, at least, hungry for power. They're not people who are greedy. Instead, they're generous. And just like their savior, they believe that they ought to be sacrificial in the same way that Jesus was sacrificial. But when a selfish person sees this, they're like, oh, the light is too bright, I can't be a part of that. Get away from me. And so Paul, in the story that Luke is telling us in the book of Acts, he's being depicted as somebody who's doing the right things before the people who are corrupt, so that they could highlight the good parts of the system that would make the world a better place. And the way that the world treats Paul is the big question that we are asked, right? when you see the bright light in front of you, are you going to push it away? Or are you gonna say, no, I need to repent. I need to, I have been a part of a corrupt system for so long, I wanna be a good force in this world. In other words, if you are a Christian, this is the question that Luke is asking us. How are you bringing out the best from the inside? Whatever your inside is. If you're part of a company, are you bringing the best out of the people in your company? Instead of looking at the police and saying, we need to defund them, because they're doing everything wrong, right? And I'm not taking a stance on this, I'm just using this as an example. Instead of hitting it from the outside, Paul is saying, what if you are actually part of the police force, and your job is to bring the light from the inside? That when you see corruption happening around you, you're saying, you might be doing the corrupt stuff, but I'm gonna do it the right way. And the people who see that, they may either look at that and say, I need to be like that guy, or, they might say, oh, that's too bright, I don't wanna be a part of it. If you see the politicians and you're like, I can't trust the politician, instead of attacking them from the inside, why not go on the inside and be the one politician that's doing everything right with honor, with love for the people of the community they represent. And when the other people see you, they might say, you know what, I need to change my ways because that person's doing it right. Or they might look at it and say, no, we need to persecute you because your light is too bright for us to bear. Paul in this part of the story is representing the guy who is representing the light of Jesus wherever he goes. And he's not doing it by shutting down systems. He's going around to people seeing if he can make the system better. And this is the reason why he's being persecuted in so many different ways from the corrupt system that he was a part of. But he believed in it even more so than the people that represented it. And so again, I ask you the question, how are you bringing out the best from the inside? of whatever you're a part of. Maybe you're part of a family that's doing some shady stuff and maybe your role is to say, hey, you know what, from this day on, we're gonna do the right thing. And maybe some of your family will see that and say, hey, you know what, I think that person's right, maybe we should start doing that. Maybe you're part, you know, maybe you see some shady stuff happening in this church. If you think there's shady stuff happening in this church, be the light in this church. If you think something shady is happening in your school, in your classroom, maybe in your your group of friends, you're gossiping about somebody, and then you're the one person that's like, I refuse to participate in this gossip. Be the light in your group. How are you bringing out the best from the inside? Amen? All right, let's pray.